Welcome inside Appalachia. I'm Roxy Todd. If you're like me, you rarely think about where your food comes from. Don't have to. We go to the grocery store and have so much to choose from. But global experts, like some of those who work for the United Nations, say small and medium-sized farms are critical to future food systems. That's what we've got here in Appalachia. But more and more farmers across our region are facing economic challenges. And they have to worry about their health insurance. How are they going to pay that? Um, they have to re learn about or work their concern with uh, how are they going to come up with enough money for retirement. Another challenge farmers face, a fairly short growing season. So some people are reviving the tradition of preserving their food through canning. Folks like 27-year-old Ashley Cox. It's such a dying art. It's family time. It's rewarding to know that you did it yourself. You know, it was food that you watched from the ground all the way to the can. Also, have you heard of Melungeons? This group of people in Appalachia have long faced prejudice for their dark skin. We'll hear about several people's journey to reclaim their family stories and how new science reveals just how racially diverse Appalachia is. So it's opened up a whole, like, all these new doors, you know, to walk through and to learn more about, you know, myself and my family and, 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 and even the larger, you know, history. You'll find these stories and more this week inside Appalachia. Welcome inside Appalachia. I'm Glennis Board. Today, we're listening back to a show we originally aired earlier this year, before the pandemic changed so much of our lives. And while some of the stories take place before social distancing, back when we didn't have to avoid large crowds, the heart of this episode remains true to our current situation. I find that whenever I tell folks I'm from Appalachia, people respond with a lot of different kinds of questions. And maybe like you, there are some questions that are, well, ridiculous. Like, do you have running water in your home or indoor plumbing? Do you have all your teeth? But honestly, the more I travel outside our region, I find there's a growing appetite for authenticity in general. And a lot of folks with genuine curiosity about life here and in our people and I find these interactions so encouraging. One could spend a lifetime learning about Appalachia and just scratch the surface. Today's show, we take a deeper look at traditional cultural practices found throughout these mountains. And we'll start with music. And while there is almost nothing more stereotypical than fiddle music when you're talking about Appalachian culture, it may surprise you to learn that there are different styles of fiddle that vary depending on which holler or community someone lives. A lot of traditional Appalachian practices would be lost if it weren't for experts sharing their knowledge with the next generation. And the West Virginia Humanities Council has been promoting that exchange through their Folklife Apprentice program. One master and apprentice duo that completed the program recently spent a year preserving a style of old-time fiddling. Our Folkways reporter, Caitlin Tan, brings us this story. Old-time music is a large part of West Virginia's heritage. It's the folk music of the state. And although it's now gained the popularity of people from all over the world, hundreds of years ago, it was isolated within Appalachian communities. But as it gains traction, some of the uniqueness is lost. Doug Van Gundy, an eighth-generation West Virginian and an expert in the music, says it's the foundation for a lot of modern music today. It was the homemade music. It was the local music, it was the kitchen music. And up and down the Appalachian Mountains, you had people from Scotland and Germany and Northern England, places that had 
fiddle music traditions that came here and that got mixed in with rhythmic traditions from West Africa with the banjo. So in 2018, Doug partnered with up-and-coming old-time fiddler Annie Stroud in an effort to pass down his knowledge of the music. They took advantage of the West Virginia Humanities Council's year-long folklife apprentice program. It pairs a master with a promising artist. Annie has always wanted to learn the specific old-time music of her home, Greenbrier County. And it turns out Doug is one of the few people who's an expert. Historically, within each county in West Virginia, and even sometimes each holler, the styles of old time changes. And Doug says the music of Greenbrier County is one of the less common techniques still alive. Greenbrier Valley style, the upper reaches were relatively isolated. And so I think the fiddling stayed closer to how it was when it got over here. I think it's a little more archaic, and yet... It's still influenced by radio and by records that came came through, but there's a, l- a lot of drone in it. There's a lot of up-bow accenting. So in that version of a tune called Jimmy Johnson, Doug says he uses a shuffle and up-bow technique. However, listen to him play the same song in Pocahontas County style. There's noticeable embellishments. Although Annie has fiddled for over 20 years, she says learning the Greenbrier style is a way for her to feel connected to home. She grew up on a farm in a grassy valley of the county, and it's a big part of her. And Annie says that Doug sharing this niche knowledge with her is important for the state's heritage. That's part of what makes the the tradition special is that I think like it's, I mean, it's a folk tradition, right? Like that's what makes it work is that you share it and people are learning it and it's, it's a part of the community. Unlike Annie, Doug didn't learn how to play old time until he was an adult. After an angsty punk rock phase, Doug sought the help of Mose Kaufman in the early 1990s. Mose was one of the original Greenbrier Valley old-time music legends. He had learned from players who were alive before West Virginia was even a state. Here's Mose playing Battle of Droop Mountain. So Doug visited Mose weekly in a nursing home for the last year of Mose's life. At the start of his apprenticeship, Doug says he just watched Mose play. He played for about three hours and he kept trying to hand me the fiddle. Now you play me something. I said, I can't play. I can't play anything. But he would play for me and by the end of that, he had figured out a tune that I really liked that he thought was simple enough for me to start on. And he said, okay, I want you to come back and play this for me. Come back next week. Mose passed away in 1994, but 26 years later, Annie is able to have that connection to some of the original old-time musicians through Doug. And Annie says that's what makes the music so special. There are these direct lines of connection of, like, stories and nuances and the way people play it, and each time it gets passed on, it changes a little bit, you know, and, like, that's part of the tradition, which is really exciting. Through the apprentice program, Doug and Annie met up to practice several times a month. 
I spent a lot of time listening to Doug's old recordings of Moe's. One of their favorite songs they practiced over the year is called Turkey Creek. It's a song Moe's wrote. Just named after a little creek in Greenbrier County. And this is a, a tune that I don't know that anybody else really played. That this, If people play this out in the world, it probably came from Moe's Kaufman. <laughs> or us. <laughs> Annie says in the past year since her apprenticeship, she shared a lot of what she learned. She even taught a beginner fiddle class at Augusta Heritage Center this past fall. The 2020 West Virginia Humanities Council Folklife Apprentice Program will begin this March, pairing together another round of novice and professional artists in the state. For Inside Appalachia, I'm Caitlin Tan. So as we heard in that last story, one of the most authentic ways to experience a specific style of music is by hearing it played by someone who is rooted to a geographical place. But what about food? How do we experience food in an authentic way? Well, for our next story, we travel to a theme park that's crafted its facade off the fantasy of being authentically Appalachian. I'm talking about Dollywood. Yes, glorious Dollywood, with a water-powered gristmill that really makes cornmeal, a campy stage show that performs music that is loosely based on the traditional music Dolly Parton grew up on. Now, don't get me wrong. Dollywood is, well, it's a masterfully crafted business, a gem to many of us Appalachians. But does it give travelers an authentic mountain experience? Reporter Betsy Shepard went to find out for a story she originally produced for the podcast Gravy. I traveled to Pigeon Forge, Tennessee, near where Dolly Parton grew up, to see Dollywood, her theme park nestled in the foothills of the Smoky Mountains. The shuttle I rode looked like an old trolley car and was brimming with the excited chatter of vacationers who've come far and wide to experience Dolly's Appalachian fantasy land. We have somebody celebrating a birthday this weekend. If we could sing happy birthday, that'd be wonderful. Happy birthday to you. Happy birthday to you. The level of happiness that surrounded me felt surreal. Almost as surreal as a theme park themed around a country musician. But if anyone has the personality big enough to float a large-scale tourist destination. It's Dolly Parton. And full disclosure, I say that as a huge Dolly fan. I've been collecting her records and singing along to them since I was a teenager. I've belted 9 to 5 on many morning commutes. And karaoke Dolly's disco song, Baby, I'm burning, while pantomiming the song's weird laser gun sound effects. And Parton's triumphant 70s hit, The Seeker, has seen me through more than a few bad days. Underneath Dolly's magnetic personality is a shrewd businesswoman. Growing up the daughter of sharecroppers with her 11 siblings, Dolly bootstrapped her way to success 
and broke all kinds of gender barriers to release 41 top 10 country albums, more than any other artist in the genre. She taught herself to play guitar, banjo, fiddle, dulcimer, piano, auto harp, and saxophone. And she's penned over 3,000 songs, including I Will Always Love You. A song, mind you, she wrote not about a romantic breakup, but about her decision to step out of the shadow of her mentor, Porter Wagner, and forge ahead as a solo artist. Elvis tried to buy the rights to I Will Always Love You, but Dolly went against her advisors and turned him down. She later licensed the song to Whitney Houston, and it became one of the best-selling singles of all time. Dolly says she made enough money off publishing royalties from Whitney that she could buy Graceland if she wanted to. But she didn't. Instead, she invested her earnings in Dollywood, a destination for her music devotees. After passing through the park gates, the trolley dropped us off at Show Street, a tableau of small-town America where marching bands parade past quaint storefronts. I was there tagging along with a group of food bloggers invited to dine at Dollywood. I initially reached out to the company about getting a media badge to do a food story and was given permission to bring my recording equipment inside the park during this pre-scheduled tasting tour. Some people go on vacation and actually stay on their diets. I don't know how that works, <laughs> but we can usually try to accommodate. That's Amber Davis, the publicist who organized the tasting tour. She led us into Spotlight Bakery to check out its oversized apple pie. Here's Katherine Hallman, who's been baking for 52 years. What we use is 20 pounds of apples, and then it's made from scratch. We use real butter, sugar, flour, salt and everything, put it together, and then we bake it for 90 minutes, and then we bring it out and we brush the crust with an egg wash so it browns up pretty, and then we put it back and it bakes for another 30 minutes, and it takes about 12 hours to cook. Wow. One piece is about the size of a regular nine-inch pie. Wow. <laughs> if you hadn't caught on, we like to do things large <laughs> at the bakery and at Hollywood in general. You will need $189.99 to purchase the whole pie. And you'll also need a small army to help you eat it. Amber walked us across the street to the sweet shop, an old tiny candy store and ice cream parlor. You can watch our master craftsman actually making candy right here. What are you working on this morning? Uh, this is homemade caramel. Oh, wonderful. You can also watch them make fudge, saltwater taffy, and a traditional Appalachian sweet called potato candy, which was invented by resourceful home cooks, turning leftover mashed potatoes into dessert. The white is confectionery sugar and potatoes, and then it's rolled in peanut butter. It's very good. Very sweet. Here we use potato flakes. Now my grandma, she used real mashed potatoes. It's very popular. That's really good. Mm-hmm. It tastes like peanut butter fudge. Mm-hmm. I like it. We headed to the next section of the park, where small town America gave way to a rustic Appalachian-inspired area called Rivertown Junction. 
we made a pit stop at Country Cookers as they made a fresh batch of kettle corn, available in flavors like barbecue, cheddar bacon, German chocolate, and cherry cordial. Around the corner from the snack vendor, we passed a more austere scene. At the center of town and the heart of the theme park sits Dolly's Tennessee Mountain Home, a replica of the two-room log cabin where the Parton family of 14 once lived. Amber describes the replica and Dolly's upbringing. Her brother built it and her mother decorated it. So um, pretty much from the source. (laughs) You've got, uh, you notice newspapers on the walls because that's what they did. Again, you have to remember, Dolly's family was very poor. So they had some, some nights that may have been spam or it may have been potted meat. They made things stretch as long as they could. As a fan, it was fascinating to glimpse into Dolly's home life. The cabin had no electricity or running water and existed in a world far away from Dollywood's huge expanse of roller coasters and seemingly endless offerings of food and live entertainment. I asked Amber about this. If you know Dolly, she's very proud of her humble beginnings. She's proud of the people who are hardworking mountain people. She's proud of the Appalachian culture and traditions and values. Um, And that's what Dollywood seeks to preserve. It's educating the next generation of, hey, this is where we come from. This is how we got to where we are. And we're proud of that. We trudged up to Craftsman's Valley, a region of the park that puts Appalachian history and folk practices on full display. Blacksmiths pound out ironworks in a fiery forge, and glassblowers handcraft a variety of ornamental goods in an outdoor glass studio. Leatherworkers make belts and purses alongside potters and woodworkers. Craftsman's Valley also showcases locally made foods. We stopped at an outdoor kitchen where a woman was stirring a cauldron of pork rinds as they fried to a crisp. The Dollywood grist mill makes and sells stone ground flour, cornmeal, and grits. With a huge water wheel, the structure is designed after a hydro power mill from the 19th century. The bottom level contains a kitchen where visitors are invited to watch bakers make cinnamon bread Dollywood's most popular snack. Can you describe what you're doing right there? Just I'm a, making a mess. Yeah, yeah, I'm making a mess. You just dip it real quick so it gets enough butter on here to make everything else stick. Regular white sugar and cinnamon. About how many cinnamon breads do you think you'll make a day? On a busy day, we can do 200 an hour. 200 an hour. And you're pretty much running all day? All day. Craftsman's Valley is also where most of Dollywood's full-service restaurants are located. Sous chef Rob Alford was recently hired to oversee the park's kitchens and update its menus. Having worked in casino restaurants, Rob knows the challenges of cooking high-volume, crowd-pleasing dishes. There has been a history in theme parks of making it easy and buying a bag product, but uh, we're transitioning out of that and we're really working towards making all of our food fresh, making all of our food in-house. And I love 
some of the local things I've found around here, uh, Sweetwater cheese and Benton's bacon are big on park. But more than that, we've got fresh tomatoes, fresh berries, fresh honey, and I really want to see a lot of that come through. No surprise. Most of Dollywood's restaurants serve her take on down-home Southern food. Chef Alfred joined our group for dinner at Granny Ogle's Ham and Beans, which is named after Dolly's favorite cook, the grandmother of her childhood best friend and longtime assistant, Judy Ogle. We were treated to a family-style meal presented in cast-iron skillets and mason jars for added effect. The restaurant's specialty is pinto beans cooked with pit-smoked ham and served with cornbread. It's a Mountain South staple made from inexpensive dry goods like beans, cornmeal, and salted meat to supply protein during lean winter months. Granny Ogle's spread also included pot roast, garlic turnip greens, mashed potatoes and gravy, and pork rinds served with a pimented cheese dip. The meal was topped off with lemon blueberry skillet cake served with vanilla ice cream from the local Mayfield Dairy. After dinner, I asked Chef Alfred what he hopes people take away from his cooking. I'd like for them to appreciate the Southern culture, the flavors that they can talk about and tell all their friends about and really enjoy. Uh, Dollywood's about making memories worth repeating and I think food is definitely a way to make those memories. We'll hear more from Betsy Shepard's trip to Dollywood in just a minute. And we'll take a closer look at how tourism has shaped the economy and culture in East Tennessee, even before Dolly Parton built her Mountain Dream theme park. Also, in the next part of our show... Go, 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 not yet. Keep going, keep going, keep going, keep going, keep going, go, now. Okay, that's better. We'll visit with a father and son who rebuild vintage stock cars and race them along a rural racetrack in Ona, West Virginia. That and more coming up after a quick break. You're Inside Appalachia. I'm Glennis Board. We'll be right back. Support for Inside Appalachia is provided by Concord University in Athens, West Virginia. With career-focused liberal arts education in more than 80 degrees and programs to pursue various career options, not just a single job. More at concord.edu. Now we're going back to Pigeon Forge, Tennessee, where reporter Betsy Shepard went looking for more clues about the origins of Dollywood in Dolly's personal history. Like many attractions at Dollywood, food is a performance. And the sound and smell of it being made contribute to the park's immersive sense of place. Banjo pickers, Appalachian cloggers, old-time fiddlers, bluegrass bands, and southern gospel quartets canvas the park. Every hour, a steam-powered train cuts through Dollywood and takes passengers on a ride through the Smokies where stereotypical scenes of mountain life are staged using props like a moonshine still, an outhouse, and a clothesline full of patched garments. Wooden roller coaster rides and log rides are made to look like local sawmills and timber companies. 
and tunnel rides riff off the area's history of coal mining. Unlike most tourist attractions, it's not trying to replicate something that's elsewhere. It's trying to create a fantasy of the world that surrounds it. Um, And all of that comes through Dolly's mythology and her storytelling and uh, her sense of place. This is Graham Hoppy. He's visited Dollywood over 25 times. And I wrote a book about Dolly Parton and her theme park Dollywood called Gone Dollywood. And has come to think of the park as an extension of Dolly's public persona. Dolly Parton is somebody who happens to have grown up living a very authentically Appalachian mountain life. You know, she grew up without running water, grew up without electricity, etc., And she kind of has this perfect country music origin story. If you want somebody who feels like they've lived the real thing, Dolly Parton's life story really fits it. She tells people that story. She makes it a part of her songwriting and a part of her music. Dollywood's Chasing Rainbows Museum tells that origin story. With artifacts and memorabilia, this part of the park is specifically designed for superfans. I came to experience my music idol in a new way. And I did. From a poof of glitter, Dolly materialized on stage as a shimmery hologram. I always wish that I could personally greet each and every guest that comes here. Well, as it turns out, that's another one of my dreams that I was able to make come true. Now, everything you see and hear in this museum is part of my journey. Memories of a little girl The museum picks up where the two-room cabin leaves off, telling how adolescent Dolly started her career, singing into a tin can that she rigged up to look like a microphone, and how she released Puppy Love, her first single at age 10. The museum also tells a rags-to-riches story in which Dolly's schoolmates taunted her for a patchwork coat her mom made and how the painful experience inspired her 1971 hit song, Coat of Many Colors. My coat of many colors that my mama made for me Made only from rags, but I wore it so a determined young musician moved to Nashville the day after she graduated high school to become a professional songwriter. Though she left the mountains, she built a career talking and singing about her roots. She even wrote a concept album about Appalachia called My Tennessee Mountain Home, which included the country hit One through line of her story is growing up in poverty, is growing up the hard scrabble Appalachian life. The other kind of through line is that she grew up in a county that had a consistent flow of people coming to see what mountain life was about, coming to see the beauty of the national park. People have been vacationing in the mountain south since the late 19th century. And when the Great Smoky Mountains National Park was created in 1940, Auto-tourism brought revenue and development to Pigeon Forge, as well as consumer demand for Appalachian music and culture. Dolly always recognized the value of her upbringing, but as she hit the stage and performed live on regional radio shows, 
she began to recognize the narrative power she had over an audience. Dolly and the Pigeon Forge tourism industry are in conversation. There's a history there that she's aware of and she knows. And she's grown up thinking about how to present her hometown and seeing how it's been presented to thousands of travelers going back for over a century. The same keenness that guided Dolly to write songs about her home place has steered her throughout her career in the entertainment industry. Dolly lit up the screen in movies like Steel Magnolias and Nine to Five. She produced the cult TV series Buffy the Vampire Slayer and even recorded duets with Miley Cyrus and Kesha in recent years. So a theme park fits pretty squarely in that roster. In 1982, Dolly did an interview with Barbara Walters announcing her plans to open Dollywood. The broadcast was seen by the Hershend family, the owners of a Pigeon Forge theme park called Silver Dollar City, and they quickly invited Dolly to partner with them and remake their park into her vision of Appalachia. Here again is Dollywood publicist Amber Davis. First of all, she wanted to invite people from around the world to see how beautiful her home is. She also thought, well, I'm going to kill two birds with one stone. People in my home need jobs. You know, this not too long ago was a very rural, poor county. Opening Dollywood was a turning point. I mean, Dollywood is the largest employer in this county. Business doubled the first year of Dollywood and has continued to grow. Dolly Parton remade the park in her own image, and the tourism boom that grew up around Dollywood transformed the entire area. One of the main industries of East Tennessee is tourism, and you can see it driving through Pigeon Forge, where you have the Pigeon Forge Parkway, which has become this sort of incredible neon developed uh, swath of hotels and motels and wax museums and go-karts and restaurants and shopping centers, outlet malls. They can kind of be overpowering, especially if you're thinking you're going to drive in to see a kind of bucolic landscape, and then you find yourself staring down the barrel of a Ripley's Believe It or Not. Dollywood recently unveiled Wildwood Grove, a $37 million investment and the park's largest expansion to date. The new section has a massive tree with colorful LED lights and animal-themed rides and roller coasters to capture the sense of wonder that the mountain wilderness instilled in Dolly as a child. I wouldn't say it's a fantasy land. It's not some far-off place, you know, that you only dream of. It's something that could be real. Throughout her career, Dolly has deflected questions about cosmetic surgery with her token witticism. I may look fake, but I'm real where it counts. Graham Hoppy says that could be Dollywood's slogan. What is being presented to you as authentic is not necessarily the authentic experience, right? Dollywood is a recreation. There's nothing that's real about it. It's an artificial environment. But there is real pride. There's real care. There are real jobs. She is a glitzy, showy entertainer. But her songs are rooted in real emotion, and people have a deep, real connection to her. Part of what originally drove travelers to the mountain south in the late 19th and early 20th centuries was a desire to see a pristine landscape and its local people protected by the mountains from outside influence. They wanted to consume something 
authentic. The more changes technology and industry bring, the more people want to experience a place outside of time. Dollywood feeds that craving and the local economy with a well-crafted story of something that could be real. Betsy Shepard is a freelance writer and radio producer based in New Orleans. That story about Dollywood originally aired on the podcast Gravy, a production of the Southern Foodways Alliance. If you're a Bruce Springsteen fan, you've probably imagined people Springsteen based so many of his songs on, like this one, Racing in the Street. There are communities that still exist across the country that rebuild cars and race them, including right here in Appalachia. For 50 years, Williamson Road in Roanoke, Virginia, has been the place to drive your hot rod. On any given Friday night, amid the glow of stoplights, fast food franchises, and international grocery stores, you can see cars and trucks modified with neon lights, spinning rims, and streamlined spoilers strutting from north to south and back again. This scene is part of Appalachian history. Americans love cars, period. But in Appalachia, we've always had a way of tinkering with objects to make them perform the way we want them to. As Inside Appalachia Folkways reporter Mason Adams has discovered, this is especially true with cars. This story about cars actually started out as a story about moonshine. Appalachians have been making and selling whiskey since Europeans first settled in the mountains. Farmers could make more money by turning their corn crop into liquor than by hauling it to market and selling it as food. But in 1920, Prohibition made it illegal to make, sell, or drink whiskey. Mountaineers kept making it anyway. To get it out of the mountains without being caught, they used a new technology spreading across America, automobiles. The best type of car for running moonshine was one with lots of room to carry whiskey and a lot of speed to outrun the cops. A lot of them hauled in four-door sedans because you could pack more in there. That's Roddy Moore. He retired this year as director of the Blue Ridge Institute, a folk life center in Farron, Virginia, smack in the middle of what was once called the moonshine capital of the world. Some cars, you could get 40 cases of uh, liquor in there, and uh, that's an investment. Roddy says the price of whiskey fluctuated, but during Prohibition, the average price for a gallon was about $1.50. A 40-case load could sell for $360, a lot of money back then. Uh, You really don't want to be caught. You want to take it wherever you're going, deliver it, get the money, and come home. But things didn't always happen according to plan. That's why some moonshiners hired drivers who could outrun the police. 
They drove souped-up cars with bigger engines and a stiff suspension so the rear end wouldn't sag from the weight of all that whiskey. Some of those drivers went on to become NASCAR stars in the 60s and 70s. But Roddy says they were just the guys who got the limelight. The real heroes that don't get the attention are the, the mechanics that were building the suspensions and uh, that would handle a large heavy weight of liquor in a trunk or handle uh, where you, if you had to speed down the highway, you could go around the curve faster than the car behind you and your motor was modified and you could outrun someone else. That tradition of enhancing cars with custom parts has endured beyond the days of bootleggers. Roddy grew up tinkering with cars in Welch, West Virginia, and he still does today. But, he says, when he needs body work done, he calls his friend Jeff Bennett. Well, his, his father had been uh, in the automotive business and was interested in hot rods, and Jeff grew up with that. And that interest went from father to son, like it's gone from Jeff to his son. So you've got three generations right there. Jeff's father, Jack Bennett, ran Perfection Auto Body in Roanoke for 25 years and died last year. Jeff now operates a custom auto shop out of his home, where his son, Jeremy, assists him with high-end body work. Jeff functions a lot like the mechanics that Roddy says were the real heroes of moonshining, never winning plaudits behind the driver's seat, but doing a lot of work behind the scenes. I, I worked on a lot of race cars and painted a lot of race cars, and I went to the races, but I never did it myself. I went to car shows and cruised around. I never had anything that would run fast. Bennett's garage sits next to his house in Roanoke. On a balmy autumn evening, Jeff's son Jeremy works with him in the shop. Jeremy meticulously buffs the inside of a car hood, preparing it for another layer of paint. Yeah, I mean, you got to sand it and get all up in the edges and cracks and stuff good or the paint won't stick. Very few people notice the inside of a car's hood. But for Jeremy and his dad Jeff... The inside of the hood is just as important as the parts of the car you do see. They don't want to just fix a car up for show, and they definitely don't want to add any of the gaudier features you can find on the street, like neon lights and spoilers, which look like wings mounted on the backs of cars. Jeff says he prefers a vintage look. See, I'm into the uh, traditional style cars. That's what I like. I like stuff that looked like it was built in 1960. So my term there is less is more. The Bennett men are all about cars that are built right from the ground up. And I mean that literally. One of the cars in their shop is stripped down to its frame with only the engine and front seat sitting on it bare. This is how Jeff completely restores a car. He strips it down, then builds it back up. He did the same thing to a 1931 Ford Coupe he bought in North Carolina. basically made the whole bottom of the car just rotted off. Built the frame. I built, I built the whole car <laughs> from nothing. There was really nothing there. Jeff's dad taught him how to do that. He was a perfectionist. I guess he tried to teach me to be a perfectionist also. You know, His big thing, and I preach it to him, is edges. Make sure the edges of your Everything is straight. Everything is perfect. Everything is fixed. Edges will make you or break you, boy. That's what my dad did. Jack Bennett, Jeff's dad, died last year, and Jeff's still grieving his loss. He says his dad taught him so much. The first time I ever painted a car for the shop, I painted some cars for myself, 
but this was in when paint was kind of evolving into new base coat, clear coats, and all this stuff. Our painter quit. Actually, my dad probably fired him. But anyway, we had a car sitting in a paint booth, and it had to be painted. He's like, you're going to have to paint that car. I said, I had never sprayed that stuff before. So he said, well, just go in there and paint. That's all I can tell you. So I, I went in there and started prepping the car. I came back out of the paint booth. He said, come here a minute. I said, what? We had a picnic table there. <laughs> but he, he told me to sit at the table. This is the first time I've really talked about him since he died. So. And we sat there and had a beer. <laughs> he said, you feel better now? I said, yeah, he said, go paint the car. I went there and painted the car. And it, was, it looked really, really good. Jeff's dad taught him to paint, and now he's taught his son Jeremy to paint. I guess he's taught me everything, really, I don't know. <laughs> I mean, because I didn't know a clue about how to do anything before I started here when I was like 14. Jeremy helps Jeff in his shop, but he's also got his own interest, Volkswagen Bugs. He's completely restored two so far, including one vanilla and mint beetle he drives around sometimes. It's a good car to go out and drive and have fun. Because, you know, you get them too nice and people like to sit them in the garage and look at them. I, I'd get in this car and go somewhere right now. Jeremy's in college, taking classes and also working a full-time job. But he still spends about 10 hours a week with his dad in the shop. So the Bennetts are keeping their family tradition alive while carrying on an Appalachian craft that's been flourishing since Prohibition, tinkering with cars. Jeremy's bugs probably wouldn't make good bootlegging cars, though. Not enough trunk space. From Roanoke, this is Mason Adams for Inside Appalachia. Now we'll visit another community of race car drivers here in Appalachia. In the early 1960s, short track racing put Ona, West Virginia on the map. As West Virginia's first and only oval asphalt racetrack, the Ona Speedway has been at the epicenter of regional racing culture. The road has been bumpy at times, and the track has survived its fair share of challenges and changes. Yet what hasn't changed is that year after year, many families return to race, watch and impart their hard-earned wisdom to the community's upcoming generations of drivers. Reporter Lexi Browning recently spent some time with one of those families, the Siglers, and brings us this story. Ono, West Virginia is a town with two stoplights, but it's also a place where legends are made. Go, 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 not yet. Keep going, keep going, keep going, keep going, keep going, go now. Okay, that's better. That's Greg Sigler. He's been racing at Ona Speedway for nearly two decades. But today, 
He's coaching his 15-year-old son, Cole, from the sidelines, using a headset that lets them talk back and forth. Keep, keep, the, keep the momentum. Keep coming. You're doing fine. Cole, who drives a white 2006 Cobalt sporting the number 99, has just embarked on his own racing career. It's his first time behind the wheel of a car. You're doing good. For the Sicklers, days at the Ona Speedway are a family affair. Cole's mother, Michael Ann, is there too. She says racing has brought the father and son closer together. They didn't really have a whole lot in common. And now that they're racing, they talk a lot. They stay gone late at night working on cars. It's really made his dad proud of him. Between practice sessions and races, Greg, Cole, and Michael Ann often spend long days together at the Speedway, but she doesn't mind. It's just real family oriented and I like that about it. Out on the track, Cole's cautious, but he's gaining confidence. He's easing into turns and leaning harder into the accelerator. After a few more laps, he pulls over for a tune-up and his crew guides him to a trailer, which serves as their makeshift pit. Hey, shut it off for a second. It's a routine check for safety. The guys check the tires, add air, and tighten a few bolts. Greg gives the green light, and with that, the Cobalt and Cole are ready to return to the track. Fired up. Man, that's a nice car, isn't it? Yep. It's not just blood relations who come together here. The track is the center of the racing community that Michael Land describes as, quote, one big family. Marshall Herring agrees. He's been coming here since the track opened, first as a spectator, then as a driver, promoter, and flagger. Now, at 71, he's seen his fair share of tracks. I raced at Ona back in the 60s, and then I moved to Florida. I raced at Palm Beach Fairground Speedway, Hylia Speedway, Hollywood Speedway. But the Ona Speedway, Speedway is home, and there's no place he'd rather be. When it opened in August 1963, it could seat 16,000 spectators, and it was slated to become a NASCAR track. The Speedway hosted four NASCAR races, bringing in big names like Richard Petty and Bobby Allison to the tiny town. People actually bought stocks in Ona Speedway. Uh, back then, it was a, they were going to build this track and make it a big thing. There was, the track that's there now was the original track that they built, but it was laid out for an even bigger track around the outside of it to run the NASCAR cars on. NASCAR racing traces its roots to the Prohibition era, when quick getaways were a necessity for moonshiners in the hills of Appalachia. Souped-up engines became a way for moonshiners to deliver their products and outrun any lawmen they encountered. By the 50s, the sport was gaining traction in fans across the United States, and Ono was right there at the center of it. It was unbelievable. I mean, I remember going there when I was young as a kid when they ran the NASCAR track, where the airport is now and all that whole bottom land was nothing but cars. There was people up in the trees on the hillside. It was unbelievable, the people that came to watch the NASCAR races at that track. The rural roads made it difficult for NASCAR's massive car-hauling trailers to access the track. The speedway was only a half mile from the nearest stretch of interstate, but without any off-ramps to accommodate the trailers, the NASCAR races eventually stopped. After a 22-year hiatus, a local family reopened the freshly paved track in 1995. By then, its seating capacity had shrunk from 16,000 to 5,000, reflecting racing's new realities. People kind of died off from it, and the track doesn't bring the crowds in like they used to. None of them do. It's hard to bring a crowd into a racetrack and charge somebody to come and watch a race, even though they might want to watch it, and it's a show that they're getting, and it's well worth the money. But it's hard to get people to do that 
because of television. That's been a big factor in the short track racing. Over the last few years, though, Marshall said things have started looking up thanks to new owners. Both attendance and car counts are up. He says it reminds him of the old days. They're running things pretty much the way it should be, and I see the track coming back a little bit, and I hope it continues to. I would love to see that place packed full of people the way it used to be, the way all the tracks used to be. Marshall says the key is leveling the playing field to make the sport more accessible to younger folks and those with lower incomes. The little guy wants to race just like the big guy. And if you got a big guy that's got a million dollars a year to bank to race with versus a guy that races out of his pocket from week to week and has to do without a loaf of bread maybe to get a bolt or a tire or something for his car so he can race, there's a big difference there. Scouring junkyards for used parts or bartering with other drivers can help lower costs of restoring and maintaining the modified stock cars, which can be classified as late models, hobby stocks, and classics. So can swapping out metal bumpers with cheaper plastics. But the best way to get involved, says Marshall, is to simply start by showing up and helping out at the track and in the garage, like Cole did. He started coming up here to the shop with his dad some, and I would tease him and tell him, we're going to put you in one of these cars next year. And he got to where he was working on the cars a little bit and helping us. And I think it's great, and I think we need more kids doing stuff like that. All right, this lap right here, listen to me. It's been a few hours, and Cole's finishing out his final set of laps. The setting sun marks the end of practice, so he pulls off the track, parks, and gets out. Driving, he found out today, isn't as hard as it seems. Honestly, it feels like you're being pushed, feels like everything's getting pushed to one side, but you know, I couldn't ask for anything better. This is probably the best track for starting off. Greg walks over to congratulate his son on a job well done. You did it! Mm -hmm. Look at you, you're like a professional racer. The race cars are loaded and the trailer doors are closed. With that, the Sigglers head home, eager to cross the next finish line. For Inside Appalachia, I'm Lexi Browning in Ona, West Virginia. raised here in Appalachia, there's a lot that's broken and sad, and I've definitely considered living in other places. I've also been lucky enough to travel some. For a long while, I just wanted to live in California. I finally got to visit. I saw some beautiful places and met some beautiful people, but I noticed something strange. It seemed like everywhere I went, people were aching for something. 
They would be scheming in thick and wonderfully intellectual ways about how to build meaning into their lives. And there was always a question in my mind about who these people were beneath this veneer they presented. Well, sometimes you have to leave a place to know how to appreciate it. And I discovered on that trip out west that authenticity and meaning were things I had never even imagined you could even want for while living inside Appalachia. You can't really swing a dead cat without doing something meaningful here. And it was Aristotle who taught that one of the critical components of happiness is purpose and meaning. And as for authenticity, which I looked up real quick and is defined as being true to your own personality, spirit, or character, well, we have that in spades too. Now, I'm a big fan of Doug Van Gundy and the traditional mountain music we heard at the top of the show. And I love hearing about the Humanities Council Apprentice Program. So good, so real. But I frankly did not expect stories about hot rods and racing and Dollywood to be my cup of tea. Yet... I found more than I expected. These stories went deeper to reveal meanings in some of these traditions, or, well, I'll say it, stereotypes. They highlight the authentic and meaningful experiences and people that are common here, and that make this place so awesome. So I hope you enjoyed our show this week as much as I did. Till next time, thanks for joining me as we journey throughout Appalachia. We had help producing Inside Appalachia this week from the Southern Foodways Alliance and their podcast, Gravy. Special thanks to the West Virginia Folklife Program and the West Virginia Humanities Council. Our theme music is by Matt Jackford. Other music this week is provided by Dinosaur Burps, Adrian Niles, Larry Gross, Bruce Springsteen, Doug Van Gundy, Mose Kaufman, Annie Stroud, and Dolly Parton. Roxy Todd is our producer. Eric Douglas is our associate producer. Our executive producer is Andrea Billups. Brittany Patterson edited the show this week. Our show mixer is Patrick Stevens. You can find us on Twitter at InAppalachia. And you can also send us an email to InsideAppalachia at wvpublic.org. Visit wvpublic.org slash InsideAppalachia to sign up for the Inside Appalachia newsletter. There you can also subscribe or download all of our stories or look for the Inside Appalachia podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Inside Appalachia is a production of West Virginia Public Broadcasting.